This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Good morning, good morning. It is three minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on Radio Marinara on 3RRR. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Bron Burton. And I'm Terry Allen. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. I've got a little bit of a voice that's been worn by um, perhaps too much shouting over loud music the other night, so you'll have to deal with the Demi Moore this morning that (laughs) I'm channelling (laughs) from the (laughs) mid-90s. What a beautiful day. Yeah. If you were going to have a barbecue, you'd probably do it on a day like today. Today would be mm. the day. Yeah. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. It's always warm. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Turn series into um, oh, hive of activity and mm. fun frivolity. Yeah, I think 34 today. Is that right? Oh, has it gone up to 34? Yeah, they're mm. getting hotter. Amazing. will be flowing. The who? Will? The, the beer. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you said. I'm not going to tell you what I did. Anyway. We've got a big show today. We've got... Um, Coming up shortly, uh, Paul Shannon from Life Saving Victoria is going to be talking to us about uh, a campaign that um, is being launched to draw attention to the dangers of going down to um, the coast and particularly entering into waters where there are rips Mm. uh, and uh, some recent research that that points towards a particularly vulnerable demographic group and it's not what you're thinking. 
Mm. Oh, okay. Well, it might be what you're saying. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, so I actually just caught up with Paul um, a few minutes ago off air and uh, he, he's ready to go. So um, really interesting research, but also just talking a bit about rips, what they are, uh, where they are and how you can spot them, but also how um, it's, it's often the case that you can't spot them. And this is one of the really important take-home messages that Life Saving Victoria are wanting to get out there. That, um, that too many people think that they can see a rip and spot a rip and they can't. So, yeah. Yeah, and then know what to talk. do if you end mm. up in one That's as right. well. So yeah. that'll be really good. So yeah. we're going to be speaking with Paul shortly. And then, Terry, you've just been doing a bit of thinking about where the best places to dive are. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, as we'll we said, su- summer's sort of here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I'll go through a bit of my uh, top five suggestions for dives um, and might also just talk a little bit about... Uh, options for courses or a little bit of training if you want to get into diving or snorkeling. Yeah, neat. And then um, have you ever kind of wondered, you know, like, you know, you know when the light goes on at night and then you, do you when you wake up, do you feel hungry? Um, I'm always hungry. <laughs> <laughs> the look on both your faces, you're like, I, I, can't, I don't want to eat any time. Um, <laughs> well, no, because yeah. the light doesn't go on at night time. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that's no. what I was thinking. <laughs> okay. So, um, Do you may, mean a light is in a brilliant a, idea? No, 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 I mean the light, <laughs> the like light. artificial light. So um, uh, Associate Professor Damon Bolton from UNSW has been doing some work on what happens to fish ah. that live near cities. Mm. The lights are always on. It's very interesting oh, stuff. Excellent. Changes their appetite, changes their behaviour. Actually, the mm. only time the, night, the light usually goes on in the night time is when my partner comes kind of in from a late night at the pub <laughs> and I don't want to eat. I usually just want to throw something out. So. <laughs> hey, I saw this. Sorry, you want to, do you want to... Maybe we'll do the weather. Yeah, we'll do the weather. You know, I'm and taking thank you, 33. Thank you very much, Tim, too. We neglected to thank oh, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for playing at Neil Young, too. Do you know, I, I, sorry, i just throw one in there. Tim um, apologised for running a bit over time. <laughs> And I said, Tim, it's like, why could you? You'd never apologise for no. that because we love listening to you. That's right. You take whatever time you need. And he, right. he knows we'll just take it off the doctors. So. <laughs> That's right. And Everyone's a winner. We've been, do, we've been doing that for almost 20 years. Except for their fans. <laughs> Sorry, fans of radiotherapy. All right, heading for a top of 34 today. Mostly sunny morning, cloud increasing in the afternoon, medium chance of showers in the late afternoon and evening, but not over central Brunswick. The chance of thunderstorm mainly at night winds 20 to 30 kilometres an hour. And there was talk of thunderstorm asthma, actually. I'm Mm. I'm diverting, but in in the context of series, I'm going to put out a community service announcement that um, if you do suffer from asthma, Mm. even if you don't, um, and or you have on occasion, uh, if, if you've got an inhaler, just chuck it in your bag. Yeah. It's, it's worth bringing it. Yeah. My sister got asthma from that other storm and she oh, yeah. never gets it. Well, uh, I did too. It's quite yeah. funny. I spent uh. the day um, coughing, like this mm. really annoying, irritating dry cough. Couldn't work out what it had come from and um, got a bit wheezy in the evening. This was before all, mm. of, all of this was known, of course, because yeah. it all came out the following day. And um, it was actually my dad, who's a, a retired GP, and he said, you're sounding a bit wheezy. And I was like, oh, I don't get asthma. I haven't had asthma for years. And uh, anyway, had a couple of puffs and it went away. And I thought, mm. that's a bit weird. 
And uh, anyway, then the next day, bang. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. So you're right, though. I did see the Esma Foundation suggest that today had that kind of mix of thunderstorm, wind and pollen high. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, could kind of produce that stuff. So, yeah, be aware. Yeah, particularly north side too. I find that if I'm ever going to get hay fever or yeah. a bit wheezy, it's north the, side's mm. always worse. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there you yes. go. Tomorrow, a uh, shower or two and 21 and then mid-20s actually for most of the rest of the week. A um, couple of showers on Monday and then dry looks all the way through till Thursday. Uh, and then and then twelve. No, no. I'm, just, I'm just thinking Probably. that's what we've been doing. You know, <laughs> 20, <laughs> might be a bit muggy actually on Thursday. Showers clearing in twenty four. Yeah, right. Um, but, huh. yeah, today's going to be the only kind of really warm one for the next sort of five or six Perfect days. Get out there and enjoy. Go down to the beach. Indeed. Mm. We should go down to the beach. Can we um, get a dive report from you in the middle of the show? Yeah. Sure. That would be great. Nice. We'll catch up with AJ next week. Uh, and on the water, strong swells, uh, early easterly winds favouring the open beaches for the best waves. Water temperature 16 degrees. Mm, it's still cold. Yeah. yeah, coming up though, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's like warmer than 15. <laughs> yeah, it should be 18 by it now. It should. <laughs> I know it should. Yeah, it's it December. should. December. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's summer. Mm. So that, hang on, that's in the bay. That's... Uh, that could be the ocean. That's I think that is the ocean. That might be the ocean. The yeah. ocean and bay are about the same now, but they're about to flip. They're about to flip. flip. Yeah. Uh, on the island, excellent two-metre waves at Woolamai for advanced surfers, good surf at nearby beaches. Uh, same on Mornington Peninsula, strong two-plus metre mm. sets at Portsea and Gunnamatta, best suited to experienced board riders and surf coast. Fairhaven and 13th are delivering the best surfing options this morning. Yeah, there's been big swell around for, I think, oh, at least a week. Mm. Yeah, so good for surfing, not for diving. I just got a really interesting little piece of news that I came across this week I want to share with you from the Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment. So, you know, John's been doing a lot on illegal fishing, or rather illegal, unreported and unregulated is the kind of catch-all technical term. Yeah. We've been talking about a marinara a lot in the last couple of years in particular. But this one was a really left-field way of thinking about it. And that was... Um, a couple of, well, a whole heap of researchers from the University of British Columbia and Norway, Norwegian University and a whole bunch of Swansea University did this research into who is insuring the vessels that are doing illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing. And it's just extraordinary. There's all this, um, basically, this about, they, they found there were about... 67 of uh, 480 of these vessels, these vessels, and, and we're talking big ships, yeah. so we're talking proper big factory ships, all sizes, they get associated with 17 particular insurers. So these insurers are insuring these vessels to go out onto the water to do illegal <laughs> fishing. Like proper mm. big insurers, they don't name them in this report, they don't name who the insurers are, but there's one of them, for example, that's got, you know, 10% of all the illegal um, unregulated um, fishing vessels insured by them. And, of course, as, as John's been pointing out over the year, that a lot of the fishing activities in this sector is also linked to human rights violations and slavery and piracy and all kinds of stuff and drug mm. trafficking. So it's pretty illegal operations. And so they go through this kind of process where they just basically say if you can crack down on a relatively small number of insurers who have completely legitimate businesses who may themselves not even know that they've got mm. illegal vessels except they could do one very simple thing there's a little thing called the purple notice the interpol purple notice there's a list it's online and all the researchers did was they went online and they looked up that 
and got the names of the ships and they went up to the insurers' websites and they cross-referenced. Mm. So you've got to mm. kind of wonder if the insurers have got an incentive to check whether they're insuring illegal vessels. Mm. Turning a blind eye. Yeah, a little bit. Mm. But what an interesting way to think about, a totally left-field way to think about mm. how to kind of bring some regulation into something that is almost unregulatable mm. because it's out in the open ocean with these huge factory ships or mm. these... There you go. Nasty. Should definitely, um, I don't know who takes carriage of something like that. It's like an international law thing. But they, they point out the vast majority of those insurance companies are actually res- registered in the UK or um, EU. Mm. And so the laws there are yeah. really clear about not doing this. Mm. Now, this week officially has marked our entry into summer and along with the sun, sand and surf, brings the all too often unseen dangers of rip currents. And according to recently released research, it's young men who are actually at most at risk of losing their lives. In a bid to combat the ongoing issue of drowning deaths along the Australian coastline, Surf Life Saving Australia has launched a safety campaign called The Facts About Rip Currents to highlight the serious dangers of rip currents. To tell us all about it, we're welcoming to Triple R and to Radio Marinara on the phone from Life Saving Victoria, Paul Shannon. Good morning, Paul. Welcome to Triple R. How are you going? Thanks, Bron. Good morning to you also and your viewers. Um, Listeners even. (laughs) We'll cover all bases there. Um, Quick one to start with. Let's talk about the differences between... I've I've already mentioned um, Surf Life Saving Australia and and Life Saving Victoria. And I know there are a couple of other groups as well. Can you talk us through who the different groups are and what you all do? Yeah, Life Saving Victoria um, formed about 10 years ago where um, Royal Life Saving... Society Australia, the Victorian branch, and Surf Life Saving Australia, the Victorian branch, came together to be the peak drowning prevention body in the state. So it made sense when there was an opportunity to bring them together that there'd be one entity that you know, both state and federal government funding could be fed through to um, help prevent drowning in Victoria. Okay, and okay, yep. So that covers the, all of them. I was having a look at on my um, on my notes about all the different groups. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, let's get straight into it. Um, mentioned the common myths associated with beach safety. What are some of those myths? Well, what Surf Life Saving Australia noticed was that um, they, they went back and took a step back and got away from that message of just go and swim between the red and yellow flag to try and understand better um, whether people actually understand why they had to swim between the red and yellow flags. And while people understood rips and presumed that they knew where rips were and could identify them, the research showed that, in fact, two-thirds of people who thought that they could identify a rip couldn't. So that was quite alarming. So they took a step back and really have tried to, to put together an education piece to better inform people on locations that they should swim because, you know, as we know, especially down here in Victoria, um, often there aren't flags for, for people to go and swim in a safe zone. It's interesting, isn't it? Two-thirds of people who think they can identify a rip can't. That's a lot. Um, what is it, do you think? Is it Do people kind of as- associate rips with rough water? So if there's a, a rough patch of water, they think that's the rip because it looks dangerous? Yeah, it, it would seem that, that that would be the case, whereas in actual fact, of course, it's the um, calm piece of water where people are enticed to get in. The, the reason it's generally calm is because it's a run-out and it's deeper therefore the waves aren't breaking and while it looks um, from the shore less dangerous in actual fact once you actually get into it and and you get that draw of water away from the coast which of course you know tidal and and waves mean that as the 
um, you know, on any given day in Australia, there can be as many as 17,000 whips. Mm. 17,000. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a lot, isn't it? Um, there's also myths too, aren't there, Paul, about, um, about the perception about who gets caught in rips, who, who drowns in rips, and that's something that this research has really brought to light. Yeah, and again, I suppose if you look at shows like Bondi Rescue, which uh, informs so many people on um, you know, what happens on our waterways and they see multicultural tourists um, on our shores who don't have a culture of being around water, the presumption's been made that they're the people who are getting into trouble, um, whereas in actual fact it's, you know, it is um, young males um, attending beaches, you know, at any time of year, um, you know, in areas that aren't supervised that, that are actually getting into trouble. And maybe it's a little bit that, you know, a little bit like a road situation that thought that, you know, it's not going to happen to me. And again, as you said earlier, while the water looks calm in a, in a particular spot, um, you know, there's a presumption that it's okay to just jump in anywhere. There's also that perception too, isn't it, that rips only take the lives of poor swimmers um, and, and that good swimmers know how to spot rips and we've sort of covered that a little bit. But, um, but it's not the case, is it, that, that there are plenty of, um, plenty of very good competent swimmers who get caught in rips and then don't know what to do? Absolutely. And, and, and the international research is showing that um, most people who, who have drowned, it's reported later that they are people who have been able to swim. So again, that um, recognising not to be in the rip to start off with, but then recognising if you are caught in a rip, um, you know, what's the best way to, to go about it. And, and understanding that it's, you know, there is a bit of fear factor in it, you know, and I speak to people all the time who think, you know, the rip's going to pull them under or it's going to drag them five kilometres out to sea or, you know, any of those sorts of things. And that, and that in, you know, the majority of cases is, is just, a, again, an, another myth. Mm. Maybe, Terry? I was just going to say, hi, Paul, it's Terry here. I, I just wanted to ask, so what is it particularly about the, the young males or maybe going to get to that? Is it just a bravado, a peer pressure, uh, alcohol-related? Uh, well, it, 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 you know, we have as many as 20% of our drowning deaths um, in Victoria are alcohol-related, so mm. um, that, that's certainly often the case. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you look at... Um, you know, just participation even in a lot of aquatic events, they do still seem to be, um, you know, largely, you know, male-dominated. The, the males tend to, you know, want to go out further and swim further and swim point to point. Um, you know, our numbers in aquatic activities are still probably, you know, whether it's surfing, sailing, kayaking, they're still all a little bit, and, and fishing, for instance, they're all sort of um, still... You know, sway a little bit to the male side, so I think that probably um, you know does have uh, have an effect. Though again, in Victoria, we saw a, um, I think it was about a thirty percent increase in female drownings this year, uh, mm. which is something that our research people will be taking a a good look at. Mm. On the, I just Paul wanted to pick up the the continued Terry's point about the the you know kind of males as someone who used to be a young male. No, not too long ago, but you know um, <coughs> a little while ago. I, I think Paul, they they there does seem to be a kind of a we're a bit you know indestructible you know there's that kind of no fear little kind of uh, assessment of risk mm. and you know you go a bit further and you go and then you egg each other on i think that must play yeah. a part just like in cars 
Oh, look, absolutely. And I, I'm uh, one of those young males like yourself who now has two boys who sit in that category, yeah, yeah. 18 and, 18 and uh, 23. And certainly um, that ability to assess consequence, yeah. um, you know, scientifically it's been really well shown. Um, you know, the male brain and maturity versus female uh, brain and maturity. You know, they, you know there's a lot of, again, work done in that um, alcohol and drugs area um, and the ability to make smart decisions. And, and you know, it really is for, for males. It, it tends to be, um, you know, up in, up in your mid-30s before you start to show some common sense. No, it's what I sometimes wonder, seriously, Paul, how we have lasted so long as a gender. But anyway, back to you, Brian. I'm just wondering, Paul, um, in terms of rips, we were talking about spotting a rip and how difficult it is to spot a rip. And obviously the safest way to spot a rip is to not even bother trying to swim between the flags. It's a very simple message. Um, the other thing about flags is that uh, they also indicate that there are surf lifesavers um, there. Uh, if there are no flags there, if you t- you take it into your own hands, mm. you walk into the water, there's not necessarily going to be someone who can come and save you. Um, but uh, just on rips, you mentioned 17,000 around the Australian coastline. Um, are they some places more prone to rips? And, and if so, where where are they? Yeah, the, the, um, the geography of the landscape and, and the ocean floor play a, a pretty large part. Um, you know, the ocean-facing beaches as opposed to the bay beaches, um, there just tends to be that little bit more force, but that's not to say that there's not rips present, you know, um, on all waterways. And certainly we, can, we look at our drowning statistics and see how many people drown in, um, in Port Phillip Bay. There's, mm. there's more people drown there than, than um, you know, our ocean-facing beaches. But again, it, it's largely that presumption, you know, if you go to the beach, a lot of people will look at it and go, geez, it's a bit rough there today, I'm not going to go out. Um, and, you know, they don't get into trouble. Whereas if you're on the bay and, you know, you can find a nice little protected pocket, there's the presumption that, um, you know, there, there isn't a rip there. And we're, we're seeing, you know, um, and again, the, the strength of the water flowing is, isn't necessarily the only ingredient because um, a person's ability to swim, and, you know, we're seeing drownings where um, people who can't swim are literally just walking straight out into the water and getting, finding a, you know, a ditch or a hole where they can't, you know, purchase the ground anymore and drowning one metre away from mm. safety of actually being able to actually get back on the sand. Mm. It's hard for us, for people who've grown up in um, around beaches to actually understand that you know two boats can walk out into the water and literally take one step too many and drown because they don't have any swimming capability. Yeah, that's right. Um, in the worst case scenario, how can someone tell if they're in a rip? I think we should ask that question because um, I think everyone in in this studio knows the answer mm. to that question. But there are people out there listening. How do you know if you're suddenly caught in a rip? Well, you, you'll, you'll find that um, the, the water will be drawing you in a particular direction and, and you might think it's really just um, a light tidal pull. And if you're not concentrating on where you are, and again, if you've ever taken little kids to the beach, you know, they go into the water in front of you thinking, and then they'll come out a few minutes later and they'll be 100 metres down the beach and mm. they won't have even realised. So it, it's not that there's... Uh, it's not like... Uh, you know, sitting in a fast-flowing river, but it, it will just be that slow, gradual 
you know, pull out, to, you know, depending on, um, you know, the conditions of the day. And, and again, you might see that there's breaking waves either side of you and breaking waves out the back, and you think, you know, that's not going to be too bad. I'll just get out to the other side of the, of the waves in some clear water. And before you know it, once you try to come back, um, back into the shore, and, and, you know, once you're starting to fatigue, you, you literally find you can't get there. Um, and then that, yeah. that brings us to the, the next obvious question. What should someone do if they suddenly find themselves in a rip? What should they do? Well, the first thing we do is always advocate never swim alone, which is um, so that ability to raise awareness, to, to be able to yell out and call for help. And, you know, we're, we're lucky around our coastline that, you know, surfing so popular, for instance, and, you know, we work with Surfing Victoria and they work, you know, on empowering surfers to make sure, number one, to advise people not to go into places that they shouldn't go. But, you know, there's, there's many um, surfers that, that do rescues, you know, around their coastline. Um, there's people walking along piers and jetties who, who then, you know, can... Um, you know, help people out. There's so so that being a you know that yelling and calling out to someone is really imperative. If if you can swim, the recommendation is to to try and swim parallel to the shore um, and head to where the waves are actually breaking because the the physics of waves breaking is that the, it has to be on you know shallow ground. So to try and head towards the waves, um, and you know if you if you find you're tiring, you know. You've, you've got to be able to relax, re, regain some, some composure, and um, and then maybe try the other way if you're not if you're not actually getting anywhere. So if you feel like you're not winning, you need to be a, actually able to reassess what you're doing and try something different. So I mean, in, in the heat of the moment, you know, to try and say to someone, well, try, relax and you know, get your breath. I know that sounds mm, you know bit of an moron. <laughs> But um, if you actually understand the mechanics of the rip, it actually just absolutely makes common sense. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, rips are used in um, you know positive ways, you know, all, all the time. Like, you know, I surf with, regularly with my kids down on that Fairhaven coastline, and and we look for a rip to jump in it every Take time. Take you out. <laughs> yeah. We know, we know the waves aren't, aren't going to be breaking in that location. We know the rip only goes you know, 100 metres out where you can then just paddle across to your, to your left or right. Um, so it, it's understanding the, the mechanics of it to be able to make an informed decision on how you're going to tackle it or whether you should actually be there in the first place and understanding your own capability and and looking out for vulnerable people. You know, my, my wife wouldn't dream of taking out kids when they were small, you know, straight down to the beach, you know, in, in front of the car park knowing that there's a surf club five kilometres down the road where she could take them down there um, by a set, you know, and make sure that they were supervised in, in a safe place. Sure, she would still stand in the shallows and count heads, you know, every two minutes, but, um, you know, it's looking out for those vulnerable people. And, you know, they're our kids and our, our older adults. You know, we've got a, a, an increase in older adult drowning in, uh, in Victoria, which is, is something, again, our, our research people are looking at. Um, but again, it's we're probably having more people recreate in the water, which is fantastic, which we absolutely want to advocate for. But you know, if, if you're an older adult, maybe you need to visit the doctor beforehand and, and check that your heart's okay or, or you know any other health issues. Yeah, that's right. Um, Paul, we're going to leave it there, but just some more details if people want to get some more information. You've got a couple of websites, I believe. 
that people can go and have a look? Yeah. Um, FeedSafe.org.au um, is, is a great starting point. It gives all the information about the uh, about rips and how they form and, and whatnot. Also um, provides a list of all the patrolled beaches, um, the hours that they're patrolled, um, gives them a safety rating. Um, again, just provides some information for people to make um, an informed decision on, on good beach spot to go to. Fantastic. So beachsafe.org.au. We've actually put a link to that on our Facebook page. So um, anyone who's listening can go and have a look at that straight away and uh, and we'll likewise um, do so on the um, Triple R Radio Marinara page as well. Thanks so much for joining us, Paul. It's been fantastic speaking with you and um, maybe in February when we come back from our summer break, we'll catch up with you then because I'm uh, very keen to find out what's been going on in terms of beach safety over the summer. Awesome. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Bye. It was uh, Paul Shannon from Life Saving Victoria talking Mm. about rips, rip currents and uh, and safety. And beachsafe.org.au, I love what they say on their presser here, to find out what you don't know about rips. And Mm. um, as he's saying, the mechanics, understanding the mechanics of rips, I've been called in rips. Mm. And uh, And and you use them. Like Paul said, you know, they, they can be you know, really yeah. useful. Yeah. But, or but that, that psychology of actually mm. thinking swim sideways, not mm. trying to not fight for exactly. the beach is That's right. such and, a natural and response. Just, and just keeping calm. And yeah. if you're out there in the water too, this is what I always do, is um, just keep a, a visual on, on a landmark yeah. all the time. If you find yourself drifting off, because it can happen, it happens really easily, mm. um, get yourself back before it's too late. While Terry is sitting here putting on her snorkel mask regulator divest... See that sound? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've just been for a dive and you're about to go for it. Hey, where should people dive in summer? Right. So, summer is here and, um, yeah, there's a few great places and I think a lot of people... Uh, I do quite a lot of teaching and a lot of people go, oh, I want to learn to dive because I really want to go to Fiji and Maldives <laughs> or whatever. Uh, or I want to go to Queensland. Oh, we know yeah, how sad that it is at the moment. Nothing, um, nothing's changed in 25 years, I know, Terry. I know. And I just say you don't realise how absolutely brilliant the diving can be here. Yes, it is cold in, in winter, uh. colder, but it's warming up. And, you know, as, as we all know here, beautiful endemic species. You're not going to see any... Um, blue devil fish anywhere else in the world. Uh, you're not going to see uh, sea dragons in many other places um, around Australia. So, yeah, it, it is really, really good. Um, so a few suggestions I've got here. I might actually start by just briefly talking about some courses and ways you can get into diving. If you've got kids, um, then one thing you can think about doing is just a bit of fun is called bubble makers. Mm. And if your child is eight years old... Uh, you can blow bubbles in a swimming pool. Um, great fun, uh, good for sort of parties and things and just gets them sort of into into the diving side of things without being too serious. If they want to learn to dive, they need to be, in Australia, need to be 12 years old. So between 12 and 15, they can run a junior open water. They do everything the adults do. They're just uh, limit, more limited to with depths, so they can't go any deeper than 12 metres. But, you know, there's a lot to see in those first 12 metres, um, as we know. Um, and then otherwise, the normal open water course anyone can do after 15. Um, but, of course, there's great snorkelling and then the, you can do skin diving and now free diving is a big thing and I think we've talked a little bit about that during the year as well. So, um, Can I go back to bubble makers? Sure. Because um, it's of particular interest. Of yours? To me. <laughs> yes. Each group of my children. Um 
where can you where is Bubble Makers run? Is it sort of all over um, at least Melbourne Metro, the different parts of the the town? Yeah, so most um, most dive shops will run Bubble Makers. Um, I don't think any of the uni clubs or I don't know of any private clubs that run bubble makers. I'm sorry if, if you're out there, let us know. <laughs> um, and subscribe to Marinara. And subscribe next to Marinara. Year, and That's all right. Um, but uh, yeah, any any of the dive shops and they usually run them, you know, just in local pools. Um, so for example, Carnegie Pool near where I uh, do some teaching uh, we run bubble makers there. Yeah, so, yeah it's I love Carnegie Pool. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that old-fashioned, <laughs> love it. you know, little bit uh, slightly grotty, but no, it's oh, not too that's bad. That's one of the best bits. The decrepit ones are <laughs> always decrepit. the best. Yeah, yeah, and you get a couple of metres of water and the kids just bolt straight to the deep end, of course, yep. and under our careful supervision. <laughs> um, and they love it. And we have, you know, we put hula hoops in and we throw toys and we do a few cool stuff. And so. what about the cost? Cost for bubble makers is around about should be about sixty dollars. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah, so we do a little bit of you know just very basic theory, just you know don't hold your breath kind of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we and just remember to breathe. Go, a yeah, to yeah. breathe. Yeah. Um, and then give probably about nearly half an hour to an hour in the pool, which is okay. usually enough because kids get a bit chilly and yeah. So yeah. yeah, but good fun. And as I say, it's been quite popular as like a birthday party because you know you always got to do the next best thing. For I know I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a parent, yeah. but. I know that there's, you know, it becomes very competitive. Have you ever done this at a birthday party? Bubble makers yeah. at 60 bucks a head. Yeah, 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 right. I'm thinking, wow, that's a hell of a birthday yeah. party. But, you know. Um, but but I would love I'd love for my kids to do it. I yeah. think it's a great idea. And I really At somebody else's birthday party. No, I I'll, I'll pay for them. But um, a very very nice gentle introduction yeah. to being yeah. underwater. Yeah, yeah. With, yeah. with something in your mouth that's, that's not right. connected to the surface. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so yeah, yeah no, they, and I love teaching it. It's really fun because they just no no fear. It's like kids yeah. with skiing. So yeah, it's good. Uh, all right. So moving on to our dive uh, spots. Um, if you into snorkeling or want to learn to snorkel or whatever i would highly recommend for shore diving and i talk about this a lot but it is amazing blair gary blair gary marina being redeveloped uh, we've i know you've talked about the um sponge operation sponge you can see a lot of those sponges just from the surface right. so if you're mm. snorkeling carefully under the pier away from the boats away from the fishermen you can really see a lot um globe fish of course everywhere Beautiful sponges, bryozoans, um, probably even some nudibranchs because, like, the nudies there just crawl on the sand. They're just wow. bizarre. Yeah. You know, Bohemian yeah. nudies. Yeah. <laughs> I just, like, I don't know what, yeah. You know, you know, you were saying, you know, like, carefully under the pier away, yeah. from, the, away from the boats. Are there rules about snorkelling in a marina like that? Like, are there kind of times you can and times you can't or...? Yeah, so I, definitely with diving, the, the Blairgarry people have actually put up signs and there's a specific point um, that put a special lower landing for us. Yeah. So we, we jump off there and snorkelers would do the same. Um, there's no fishing allowed on the marina side, um, but and you can go in amongst the marina, but it's far better and all the critters are under the pier. So stay under the pier. Just be careful when you're snorkelling, of course, the overhead beams and things like that. So it's good to do it as a buddy pair, like we talked about with surf lifesaving. Always dive uh, or snorkel with someone else and you can kind of take in turns and, and look after each other. Um, and, you know, Paul also did talk about the tides and the rips and now uh, 
totally unrelated to the dredging that occurred, uh, we do have a lot bigger um, movement of, of uh, tides. So just uh, be careful. Probably good to do it at the turn of the tide, high tide. Um, another great place is Rye, Rye Pier. Um, there's the Octopus's Garden Trail there. Mm. Nice and shallow again. Um, chance to see, very good chance of seeing smooth rays. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful, you know, about two metres across. Oh, wow. Just gorgeous. Very friendly. They hang around the pier. Um, yeah, they're really, really good. And the other great snorkel shallow dive places, of course, Flinders Pier. So uh, great chance to see the uh, the weedy sea dragons. And at the moment, we've got the males there with their, with their googie eggs on, which is just gorgeous. Um, and even snorkelling, if you're a good snorkeler, can go down, you know, if you're able to go down, say, two metres, you'll probably see them uh, hanging over the seagrass. Um Flinders also recently we've even had Port Jackson sharks, yeah, wow, cool. which is quite unusual. Nice. Yeah, so if you really actually want to see a real shark, then um, yeah. That's I, a, I used to place. find that the um, the fishers at, um, at um, as in the people fishing mm. at um, Flinders were a little bit less welcoming than at Rye. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, like you know that, and if you're there, you know sometimes is yeah. that still the case or is it not? It doesn't really look. It's it's always. It's it's rather tricky. It's Fishermen and divers don't kind of no, always don't mix. Do and in fact, I I had to I took a student last week under Portsea Pier, which had horrendous surge. But we had to quickly just get a couple of skills done. And I myself got caught by a squid jig. Yeah, wow. And I just felt this thing. And luckily, it didn't go like right into my finger. But I suddenly, sort of felt this tug. A tug. I thought, oh, oh no. So that's actually a good safety warning. We never ever go diving, probably not even snorkeling, without. Carrying a knife, yes, yeah. you just yeah. have to because it's impossible, of course, to see the fishing line in the water. And uh, yeah, but look, if you stay right under the pier, as yeah, I keep emphasizing, okay. you should yeah. be okay. Yeah. And I, I try and get along with the fishermen. If I find a few squid jigs and that, I'll give them to them and sort of say, well, in return, please, you know, don't drop them on our head. Don't next drop them time, on yeah. our head. Please don't kill banjo sharks and just throw them back in the water, oh. which we see a bit, bit sad. Um, so the uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was boat diving. So, of course, this is a bit more of an expense, but maybe a good thing to do, maybe like a Christmas present sort of a thing. Um, to Pope's Eye, of course, is fantastic. Been a marine park for, I think it's nearly 30 years now and often done with the seals. Um, and the other really good place... Really good place to go is South Channel Fort. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting, great snorkeling under the pier, and then you can climb out and go on the land and see one of our former uh, forts. And uh, there's a bit of history kind of stuff there. So and there are yeah. var- various operators that can take you out there. Yeah, there's num- a number of um, charter boats um, around the bay. Yeah. So. So much cool stuff you can do. Are there any websites people can check out that has like you know lists of kind of random dive sites around Melbourne that you know? Um, most of the ones I know of are kind of more related to clubs and dive shops. Yeah, okay. So, so if you just search Yeah, up if you that, just do some Google. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Oh, I will see you underwater this summer. Good. <laughs> I hope <laughs> uh, so. Uh, indeed, oh. you're on Radio Marinara. It's almost 10 minutes to nine, which means it's almost 10 minutes to the doctor's 10 minutes when I can give my voice a rest. And that means it's about two hours until... The uh, tr- the triple R barbecue day over at Ceres. So, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and kind of the lights have gone on and you felt hungry? 
Well, it turns out that some predatory fish might do that, in fact. Uh, Associate Professor Damon Bolton is from University of New South Wales and he and kind of a bunch of colleagues recently published an article in The Conversation that highlighted a paper in the journal Science of the Total Environment, which I've got to say is just one of the coolest journal titles, Science of the Total Environment. Damon joins us uh, to talk about fish, food and light this morning. Good morning, Damon, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Uh, thanks, Anthony. It's good to be here. Hey, now, now tell me, it's a great study, but wh- i got to say, what on earth prompted you to think that artificial light from our cities might actually affect the appetites and behaviour of fish? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, man. So, uh, there, I mean, artificial lighting itself has just boomed. Um, and in the last two decades, we've, we've just seen a, a huge increase in, in artificial light. And that's kind of sparked a lot of ecologists' interest in, in how it affects the ecology um, all around them. So not only uh, in, the, in the marine environment where we work, but also um, on land as well, so very proximal to the lighting sources. So there's lots of research on how it's affecting our um, animals and even our plants on land. Um, and that just it makes us marine ecologists consider... Um, you know, there, there must be impacts also under the water. And so what, what, what the kind of light we're talking about, we're, we're talking about street lights, shop lights, you know, just housing lights. We're talking about kind of the lights we have on at night when we live. Yeah, absolutely. So um, not, it, it all kind of combines, and especially in our big urban centres where, um, you know, we have our big cities, uh, we, we have 24-hour lighting. It's, it's pretty much always on. Um, but not only that, we've got um, a lot of coastal infrastructure. We have um, our extractive in- infrastructure, so our oil rigs. We have our port loading facilities and stuff. And these guys are, are the ones that are using quite significant amounts of light as well. So how do you go about actually studying the effects of light on fish at night when, as you point out, there's light on the fish at night already? Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, there's this, this term called uh, sky glow or night glow and uh, it basically refers to the reflectance of our artificial light um, from our cities being reflected back down again. And so the sky glow itself uh, impacts a vast amount of our uh, environment up to like hundreds of kilometres away from the source even. Um, so the marine environment uh, is going to be, especially close to urban centres, is going to be affected by, by the sky glow. Uh, but it's going to be quite minimal. It's when there's direct light you know, into the marine environment uh, that it has a bigger impact. So we know um, that light doesn't actually travel very well in water. It, it's filtered out quite quickly. Um, uh, so the sky glow itself is going to have uh, not as big an impact as, as the direct lighting we're finding from our marinas and our um, loading facilities. So did you guys go and try and find places that had never, you know, like didn't have that kind of light and then just flood it with light and, and look at what happened? Like how to actually physically do this, to do this experiment? Yeah, I, I, this is the kind of the fun bit. This is the <laughs> bit that I really enjoy doing um, is figuring out this kind of stuff and how we're going to go about it. So we did, we found a, we found a wharf that isn't previously lit. Um, and yeah. it's actually associated with the Sydney Institute of Marine Science in um, Sydney Harbour. Yeah. We climbed under there and we, we set up a huge array of um, <laughs> LED spotlights 
and just mm-hmm. uh, and we use that you know, to to flick them on and just flood that that little environment with uh, with artificial light. And so, okay, so then these poor little fish, and I assume everything <laughs> else that's been living there has just gone. Oh, it's all of a sudden day again. What 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 actually happened to them? Like, what did you see with the fish? Did they just kind of become twenty four hour party animals, or, or what? Hide away. Yeah, well, it's actually it's super interesting because uh, we we managed to actually record fish at nighttime with the lights off as well using a cool piece of equipment um, that uses sonar imaging. So we didn't actually add any light, but we got a really cool video image uh, mm. similar to what you would get of your belly with a baby in it, uh, yeah, the wow. ultrasound. Uh, so we could see that at nighttime with no lights on, there was actually a ton of fish and they were just hanging around, um, very sedentary. They weren't moving around very much. Um, and when we flick the lights so can on, I just check? So hang on. So that's like sleeping fish. Yeah. They're like, just hanging yeah, out sleeping. Like yeah, on right. the reef. Yeah. 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 Yeah, basically. And they're, yeah. they're obviously using that habitat for something that's ecologically important for them. Sure. Uh, they're resting and they're recovering. And then we've come along and we flick the lights on <laughs> and uh, the, the amount of fish actually suddenly reduced it, 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 really significantly from hundreds mm. down to like tens of fish were, were left. Um, but well, hang on. So they just... Interesting. They're hiding they swim, away? Yeah, they swim away or what? Yeah, basically they left the left the environment. So when the, the lights are off, they're all hanging around underneath mm. the wharf there. And when the lights are on, there's actually very few um, fish in the in the predatory size, at least. Yep. And so the the ones that stayed, did they keep sleeping, or did they actually start doing something different? Did they you know, kind of you know, I don't know, start you know eating or, or whatever else they were you know would normally do during the day. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we did we did see that. We actually found an increase in, in predation pressure at night time when the lights went on, even though there were fewer fish. So that was one of those things that we were just like, wow, this is quite interesting. Um, the predation pressure was more similar to a normal daytime um, than, a, than a night time without the lights on. Paul, is that, um, do you think, because they're uh, assuming it's daytime and they're moving into normal feeding behaviour or is it maybe almost an aggressive response? Mm. Um, yeah, so uh, same as me- many animals respond to light on, on land, uh, you know, their circadian rhythms are telling them that they should be doing a certain behaviour or a certain activity. Uh, when the lights are on, often some animals are triggered to feed while often their prey are triggered to hide. Uh, so yeah. there's this definite link between light as a signal for ecological behaviour. Um, we think this is what's happening with the fish. The lights are on um, and, they're, and they're saying to themselves, right, it's feeding time. Um, did you find that uh, it, the behaviour changed over time? So you had the initial, you know, lights on and, wow, it's party time and I'm going to eat everything. And then over time, which of course would be the normal situation in an urban environment, that things sort of settled down or changed in any way? Yeah, definitely. So there's definitely a kind of a transition between um, abundances and behaviour through the nighttime with the lights on. And we found a peak in kind of um, uh, behaviour in the early kind of pre-dawn um, period. So from about 3.34 a.m. onwards, when it's still dark, um, they're actually starting to forage when they would normally be starting around 7am when the, when the when the dawn period hits. Right. Um, yeah, so prior to that, 
there isn't a huge amount of predation, um, and they're kind of what they're doing is they're extending their foraging time into this opportunistic kind of um, area where the lights are on and, a bit earlier. And then yeah. I've, I've got this kind of view that okay, so they so they're feeding for longer, so they, they're more active for longer. I wonder then later in what would be the normal day, are they just a bit knackered? You know, like <laughs> are, they, are, they, are they sleeping longer in the afternoon? Or, are they you know, switching like, their yeah. circadian rhythm yeah. around? Yeah, well, that's interesting. It's something that we didn't actually manage to really look into, mm. uh, but it has been looked into with other animals, for example, urban blackbirds. And these guys, they don't actually switch off during the daytime. They continue to feed. Yeah. And then there was this question about body condition. Are they actually getting enough resources to compensate for the extra energy that they're spending? Um, and, the, and the answer for, for them is no, they're not. There's no correlation between... Um, better resource uh, accumulation and body condition. Goodness me. And just one last one because we're almost at, at, out of time. But um, that, So we talked about the, the, the predators. What about the prey? When the lights went on, do they, all, you know, do they disappear? Do they kind of go, oh, Jesus, the day now? Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. So our, our prey were actually sessile invertebrate communities, so yeah. uh, little communities of... Uh, in uh, organisms that can't move, they basically settle down and that's them. They can't um, So when the lights went on uh, and they were vulnerable, <laughs> they couldn't like freak out and leave. Um, and what we, you know, that's handy for us because we don't want our prey to leave when we're interested in what happens <laughs> to them. <laughs> that's not yeah. so handy for the prey. Hey, Damon, that's been fantastic. What an incredibly interesting, interesting. study. And um, I just, um, I, I guess this research is going further, is it? Are you guys looking at it and continuing this kind of research and the impacts? Yeah, well, I'm excited because it's basically uh, part of my PhD, which I've just submitted. So if anyone's listening out there and they've got a postdoc available, uh, <laughs> we'll be interested in artificial light and uh, predation in urban marine environments, for sure. Oh, fantastic. What a great place with an ad to finish. Good on you, Damon. Uh, Damon Bolton, the Associate Professor Damon Bolton from uh, University of New South Wales. And a remarkable study on artificial mm. light and fish. Brilliant. Wow. Thanks, Damon. Sorry for calling Excellent. you Paul. He <laughs> <laughs> can just get that all the time. You know? yeah, well, you um, know, the names what? are so similar. <laughs> <laughs> A very diverse and extensive uh, warrior. And stay tuned for radiotherapy and get down to Sirius for Barbecue Day. Brilliant. And in 10 days' time, it's our 20th anniversary show. Woohoo! See you, everyone. See you. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.